Let's go to the book of Revelation. We're coming to an end of our time in the book of Revelation. I've really enjoyed it. Um, but every good series comes to an end, yeah? I was going to say every good thing comes to an end, but that's not true. Right? We're believers. We know that, that uh, the best things in life actually don't have an ending because the best things are eternal. So uh, this part of our study in Revelation is coming to a close, but I, I, I want to pick up where we left off last week. Last week we talked about that wonderful statement where all of a sudden John is introduced and uh, the one that's guiding him through says this and turns to him and says, now come, let me show you the bride. Right towards the end of it, all the battles are done. The bad guys have been thrown in the lake of fire. And what's left is this beautiful city that comes down. And as I said to you earlier, a city in the Bible is not about the buildings. The buildings are described. The streets are described. The walls are described. But that's not the point. When we talk about the city of God, he's not talking about the beautiful structures. He's talking about his people. We are the city of God. And uh, so that's a wonderful thing. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God, right? That's us. He's not talking about happy buildings. He's not talking about happy streets. He's talking about happy people or glad people that are gladdened by his presence, that are gladdened by his spirit. And so at the end of all of this war and battle and, 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 and judgment and redemption, at the end of all of this at the book of Revelation, we see this some, some of the most beautiful pictures of this grand city. And he says, come, let me show you the bride. And that's talking about the church. We're the bride of Christ. At this point, when he says, let me introduce you to my bride, let me introduce you to my church, like we said last week, for some reason, he's not ashamed of us. And the reason he's not ashamed is because Jesus himself has prepared us for this moment, that we've been washed and sanctified, that, that just as it says in Ephesians 5, he has washed his bride, he has sanctified us, he has cleansed us by the washing of the water by the word, so we're ready for this moment. We are without spot or blemish in this moment. He shows us this beautiful city and he says, everyone come. And in fact, why don't we just read it? Rather than me quoting it, I'd rather you see it yourself. In Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. These are some of the last words he's going to say in the whole Bible. Um, the final message, I think if you were to really be like after this, he, he says, you know, I'm coming quickly. He says, don't add to this book or take away from it. And there's some pretty severe consequences for those that do. Um, and those are important points. But tonight I want to focus on one of the last things that said, which is the picture he's painting of the, new, the newness he's created. Remember, he says, behold, I'm making all things new. He says in chapter 22, verse 1, he showed me a river of the water of life. It was clear as crystal. It was coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will have no need 
of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God himself will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true and the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets sent his angels to take to his bondservants to tell them the things which must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of this prophecy in this book. And he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of the brethren of the prophets of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. Skipping back for a minute to chapter 21. He says in verse 5, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He, over, he who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, we talked about this last week, but we would have all qualified for this category, yeah? There's nobody in the room. You might say, these sound like bad dudes, but we were all in that group. Not one of us wasn't a liar. Not one of us didn't put something before God and thus be called an idolater. I could go through every one of these things and show you how we were all part of that crew, but we've been washed, we've been redeemed, we've been bought back. And that's why he says, when he says, come, let me show you the bride, the, the, the wife of the lamb, and he shows us the church. When we skip down, he says, I, in verse 22, I saw no temple, for the Lord, the God Almighty, and the lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb. I love that. The whole city is lit up by the light of, of the lamb. It says, the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations to it. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying, shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So once again, we're seeing the folks on the outside, and we're seeing that there is a division, that, that somehow... Uh, not everybody gets in. But the reason we got in, and we see it earlier in the book, you see a group of people that take their robes, and the robes are red, and they dip it, or their robes are dirty, and they dip it in this blood of the lamb, and the robes come out clean. That's us. That's why we're in this city. That's why we're not kicked out. Not because you just lived such a perfect life. Not because somehow your good deeds outweighed your bad. Because we've got the scale wrong. This is the way that a lot of religions will weigh it out. Like somehow there's a feather. You know, the Egyptians thought there was a, they, you know, if the weight of your bad outweighed the weight of your good, then you were going to go to a bad place. If the weight of your good outweighed the weight of your bad, then you're going to a good place. Really, every religion in the world believes some form of that. But when we find out that God's scale is this, the wages of sin is death, that there is no, this, this one sin weighs more than any good deed you could do then nobody wins at this game. And that's why we needed Jesus, right? So I love, this is, how we're, this is what we're going to launch from that we ended on last week. Back into chapter 22, I know I've got you skipping around. 
He says in verse 18, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David. That's a cool thought in itself. The bright morning star. Then he says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. The spirit and the bride say, come. Well, who's the bride? We are. are. Some of the last words ever written in the Bible, and they're written in the Bible not just because there's there's a day far into the future, far into eternity, where we'll someday say, hey, come on in. This is supposed to be taking place right now. The Spirit of God has been drawing humanity to Jesus. Right? It doesn't mean that everybody's coming, but everybody's been drawn. How do I know everybody's been drawn? I know that's a contentious issue in in Christian circles. The the issue is some, some people believe that God only draws some people and some people he doesn't draw. I understand that perspective, and there's some verses you could use to to paint that picture. I get it. But I really do believe uh, the Bible when it says, I believe Jesus when he said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw everybody. He doesn't just say, I'll draw certain people. He says, I'll draw all humanity to myself. I really do believe when the Bible says that he is not willing that any should perish, I believe that's God's heart. Now, he still gave us some choice here, didn't he? But the Spirit is doing this drawing work. And that's why it's such an amazing thing when we sometimes look around and get discouraged at the world around us and we think that people are going further from God, which even when they seem like they're far from God, you, if you really talk to somebody, you find out that God, in so many people, God's working in their heart in some way. He's drawing them in some way that if you can, if you can be led by the Holy Spirit, he knows their heart. And they've built a thousand brick wall in front. And so many times our first instinct is to attack the brick wall. So the brick wall they built is, uh, you know, evolution versus creationism or whatever. That's the brick wall they built. And so we want to buy all the books that prove this wrong. And most of the time, in my experience, God doesn't do it the way you would do it. And he doesn't say, let's just bust down their belief in this theory or that theory. You know, the Holy Spirit knows this back way. And he says, this is still a human being. And I designed them. And there's something in them that's calling out for me. And I'll hit them right there. I'll touch them right there in that place in their heart. And you know what? I'll sort out the other issues later. They got theories about this, that, and the other. You know what? I'll sort that after. But first, I want them to meet me. You know, Saul was changed not because somebody finally just sat down and out-argued him. Because he could still out-argue anyone. He was really changed. Number one, he was affected by Stephen's sermon. And from that moment, the Holy Spirit began to poke him. And he kicked against the poking by persecuting the churches. But the moment where he was finally brought to to, to salvation, brought to repentance, was when he met Jesus, right? It was in meeting Jesus that everything changed. Now, I know you say, well, I wish I could just, or I could just arrange for a hit on my friend that, that God would meet them on the road to Kitscotty, you know, that they would just kind of get, you know, that their, their engine would die and they'd say, Lord, who are you? But in reality, shouldn't it be that when people meet us, they, they can meet Jesus? Shouldn't that be the case? Yeah. I would tell you the first moment Saul really met Jesus was when he met Stephen. Right. Mm-hmm. That was when he met Jesus. He just didn't want to admit it. 
And so here, the Spirit, of course the Spirit's saying come. But then the bride agrees with the Spirit, and the bride says come. And this is really the role of the church in these last days. Our, one of our greatest roles is to say to the world, come. Now I want to ask you, is that the message the world thinks we're putting out there? I don't think that's the prime thing. If you were to interview a bunch of people around. Now, l- let me tell you, that's not entirely our fault. You know, everybody can be misunderstood. But if you were to go around and say, what's the message the church is saying to you right now? What do you believe the church thinks about you? Most of them wouldn't think that, that our greatest message is God wants you back. Most of them wouldn't think of our message as a message of reconciliation. They would actually accuse us of preaching a message of division. Now, like I said, even when you love with the purest love, they'll still think that about you. I mean, that's what they thought about the early church, too. You can't entirely be avoided. I was just reading a, um, Tacitus the other day. Has anybody ever read Tacitus? Cool. All right. No, no, no problem. No problem. <laughs> That's cool. We'll just start from the beginning. Uh, Tacitus was a historian, um, a Roman historian. He wrote about some of the early uh, emperors. Um, and he wrote, I was reading what he wrote um, about Nero. And, you know, nobody's got anything good to say about Nero. Nero was a bad dude. But what was interesting was he was talking about why Nero accused the Christians or how the Christians were being persecuted and, and were being accused of starting the great fire of Rome. And Nero had to find somebody to accuse because he was being blamed. Everybody kind of thought he started the fire to clear out the slums and to have an excuse to build a new palace and all these things. So he, he pinned the blame on the Christians. But what was interesting which was, was that Tacitus was talking about the persecution of the Christians, not as a buddy of the Christians. So he said, when he talked about where Christianity started, he said, Christianity started in Judea. He said, where so many of these great evils begins. And he called Christianity a great evil. And he said, when when, uh, people started persecuting the Christians, they weren't really just persecuting the Christians because they started the fire. They were persecuting the Christians because the Christians hated humanity. Now we know, of course they didn't hate people. I mean, this is, this is the time. These apostles are still alive, preaching love, showing. I mean, this is a time when the church was actually, it had its issues, but it was a healthy church. And yet this was what people saw. And why did they see that? Well, because the church was different, and we fear what's different, right? We fear what we don't understand. And so the, the rumors about the church was that they were, uh, you know, they, they said they loved brothers and sisters, love each other, so they accused them of incest. They said that they, they ate the body and the blood of Jesus, so they accused them of cannibalism. They said, I mean, they, they got accused of a lot of weird things. But it says that, as Tacitus said, as, as Nero started persecuting them worse and worse, eventually Rome started feeling sorry for him because he was so cruel to them. And the way they went to their death changed people's opinion. And when I saw that, I think what we realized is no matter how much you love and no matter how pure your motives are, people are going to misinterpret them. Peter said that you're going to be slandered. But he said, keep your behavior excellent so that when they do slander you, they'll glorify God in the day of visitation. Because he says, there's no, there's no reward for you if you're persecuted for doing something bad. If you're being a jerk, you deserve what you get. But if you're persecuted for righteousness, then you find favor with God. So when I hear this, the church's message should be come. I realize the world doesn't always think that, and sometimes it's not our fault, but sometimes it is. 
You know, the, the scripture says that uh, with one voice, the Jews and the Gentiles, all with one voice, we should be glorifying God. That should be the loudest thing the world hears. And yet most of the time, if we get together on an issue, it's to stop something bad. Right? When the world hears us uniting in voice, normally the, the reason we're uniting is not to glorify God. It's to stop that thing from coming or that thing from happening or that guy from getting in office. And that might be all well and good, but that should not be the biggest message the world hears from us. And here, if we want to get on the same page as the Holy Spirit, then one of the greatest messages the church has to offer the world is come drink of the water. Come to the river of life. Come to the, to the source of life itself. And I want to tell you that the only reason, the only way you'll ever convincingly preach that message is if you yourself are a heavy drinker. Know what I'm saying? Come drink of the water. If you're not drinking of the water, you can talk about the water, but nobody's buying it. Some of us used to drink of the water. Some of us used to just, just be so, like we couldn't live without the presence of God. Couldn't go one day without spending time with Him. And that is contagious. People get around that. They know. They can tell what you're talking about. You're not talking about a theory of God. You're not talking about an idea of God. You are caught up in God. And they can see that on you. They can tell you've been drinking of it. They can tell something's different about you. And how many of you have had someone actually ask you, what's different about you? What are you on? What's your deal? Because you're drinking. You're, you're partaking in this. You are, you are drinking of the water of life, and so it's all over you. God is not a theory. God is not an idea to be studied. He is a person. He is someone to be known. So we got to stop preaching the study of God there's a time to learn and, and wisdom. But more than anything, we've got to say, come to God. And isn't this the message we see throughout the Bible? And we see it in Revelation from the beginning to the end. He's saying, come, come, come. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Isn't this what Jesus said? If you're weary, come to me. Isn't this why God instituted uh, these rituals in the Old Testament? Not just to make it harder, but to make it possible that they could come to him without dying. Right? Here's a way to cleanse yourself. Here's a way that there'd be atonement so you can come near to me. God has always wanted to be near to his people. And we've been designed for that. That's, so when, when God says I'm making all things new, he's restoring the way things were supposed to be, which is we were meant to run on him as fuel. We were meant to live in that relationship. And that's why I think when we preach the message of come to the water and we're not drinking of the water, it rings as fake. It rings as a sales pitch. Come to the water is different than saying come to our church service. You know what I'm saying? I invite people to, I mean, I hope when they come here, they meet Jesus. See, I, I hope when they come here and they, they, they find the love of God amongst the people that they, they understand the love that God has for them. I, I would hope that they would experience the presence of God. So I, I believe in inviting people to church. But really, I think sometimes the message that's getting across is we need to pump up our stats. And you're part of that. You know, we need some numbers. And, and that may not be your heart, but that's what they're hearing. I'm a, sales, I'm, I'm a sales number, I'm a quota, I'm a stat. You know, when in reality, the, you know, Paul said it, the love of Christ controls us. We are controlled, we are compelled by the love of Christ. The reason I'm talking to you right now is because I love you. 
And the reason I love you is because I'm so full of the love that God has for me. And the reason I can be so full of the love that God has for me is because I've been spending time with him. I know him. I've been drinking of him. I want to read, go back to a familiar chapter for us in Isaiah 55. You know, this isn't the only time he says, come to me. Throughout the book of Revelation, he says, come, come get water from me. Come get clothes from me. Come get food from me. Remember, he said it to the church in Laodicea. Remember earlier, he says, anybody that wants, come to the river. Here he says, come on. Anybody that wishes, do you hear that? Anyone that wishes can come. So why isn't everybody drinking? Not everybody wishes to. Isn't that crazy? You know that moment where, uh, that, that day of the feast where it was part of the feast in, 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 um, where the, the Jews would come and, and, and every time of this year they would go to the, the, the pool in Jerusalem and they would pour out the water and they would, they would sing, many scholars believe they would sing that, that uh, uh, section of scripture that says, uh, you know, lo, they will, they will draw from the wells of salvation with joy. And as they would draw this water and pour out the water, um, everybody was reminded that God supplied for them. They were reminded of the Holy Spirit. They were reminded that God gave them water. And they would say, with joy, you will draw from the wells of salvation, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, which was the name Jesus. And that on that day when they're doing this from the pool, Jesus, who has been hidden because he's a wanted man in Jerusalem, he's, he's been hidden. He hasn't let anyone recognize him. He stands up and he yells, hey, if anybody's thirsty, let them drink of me. They're saying, hey, they're saying, with joy, we will draw from the wells of Yeshua. And Yeshua stands up and says, yeah, take a drink. So his invitation is, come drink of me. But why don't people do it? You know, we talked about this about a week ago. And when Jesus fed all those people, and they came to him later, we just talked about this. They came to him later and said, hey, can, you know, some of them wanted to make him king. You feed people, they will, they'll find a position for you. If you're feeding us, we want you to be in charge. And Jesus said, you guys are following me because I fed you. But you should seek the bread that doesn't perish. So he's saying, I fed your bellies, but you know there's a food you need a lot more than that. And they said, well, where does this bread come from? He says, I'm the bread of life that comes from heaven. And you know, most people were just offended by that. They had no time for it. They were fine when he was giving them physical bread, but when he said, I'm the bread of life, they didn't want anything to do with it. Isaiah 55 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Do you know we serve an inviting God? He's an inviting God. And I want the world to know he's an inviting God. This does not mean that, that um, it doesn't mean God has changed. Quite the contrary, he's always been an inviting God. And thank God, through Jesus, there is a way. You know what I mean? But if God's an inviting God, we should be inviting people. The Spirit and the bride say, come. So we want to say this with the Spirit. The Spirit's already saying, come. The bride should be saying, come. Not, not come to our program, not come to our, 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 our building, but come to him. Now, maybe God will use that program or that building, but the real message is not come to our thing that we're doing. It's come to Jesus. Come to life. Come to the river. Isaiah 55 says, ho. It's a great way to start a chapter, huh? Maybe in modern translations, we should use a different word. Hey, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, 
buy and eat. Well, you just said I don't have any money. How am I supposed to buy this? How am I supposed to buy it? Well, what did Jesus say? He said, he said, you know, you need to do the work. And he says, here's the work that the Father asks of you. Here's the, here's the work that I'm asking of you. Believe in me. We say, no, there's got to be more to it than that, right? These are the works of God, he says, to believe in his son. No, there's got to be more than that. No, this is the work, belief. Now come, and he says, buy this from me. Buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what's not bread? Your wages for what does not satisfy. So what's he talking about? He's really not just talking about the money people have in their pockets. He's talking about the life that they have, the breath that they have, the energy that they have. They're spending their life on things that seem like food, but it'll never satisfy them. People are working towards something. It's just something that'll never fill the need they have. It never will. We all know this, right? And yet for some reason, we kind of, yeah, if we're not drinking regularly of him, we, we kind of start conforming back to the world. And, and, and even if we say we don't believe it, we're kind of doing the same rat race they're doing. Even when we say this, let me just, let me just put, put it a little bit different. Sometimes, without thinking, we say we're different than the world. The world wants these things. And in reality, what we say is, what we should say is, the world wants these things, but those things will never satisfy. We seek him, and all those things are added to us, but we want him. He's the one that satisfies. He's the reward. He's the prize. He's everything. But sometimes if we're not careful, we'll say, we're different, and we'll chase those same things. We'll just say, we'll do it God's way to get those things. But that's never the prize, guys. That's not the end of the race. That's not the thing you should be seeking. I don't care how you got it. That's not the point of life. God is able to give you everything you need, absolutely. But you've got to realize there's a much greater need than that. So if you're just saying, well, everything the world wants, I can have. I'll just get it God's way. You're probably missing the point. Sure, God will do that. Sure, God can do that. But that's not the prize at the end of the rainbow. That's not the point of life. If you got all that, you wouldn't be happy. That's not it. Can, will God do that? Absolutely. He says, your father knows everything the Gentiles seek. He says, your father knows he needs these things, and it's his good pleasure to give it to you. But that's still not the point, right? We're not, we're not just finding a different way to get to the same goal. We have a totally different goal. And that's why we're confusing to the world. They don't understand why our destination is completely different than theirs. Our goal is completely different. We're not just saying there's an alternate route to that goal. We're saying there's a completely different prize. What you're looking for is completely hollow. Here's what we're seeking. He says, this bread you're looking for, it doesn't satisfy you. Why are you spending your wages on what does not satisfy? I want you to hear what he's offering. Water, wine, and milk. What's the significance of those three things? These are the three beverages that God is saying are found in him. What is the significance of water? Water is life, right? He's our life. We were dying and he offered us his water. But here's the deal. We don't just drink that water when we're dying. For the rest of our life, we live off this water. He is our life. He's our milk. You ever, there's not too many worship songs talking about how God is our milk. But what does milk do? Water, water will keep you alive. But milk will cause you to grow, right? You know, Peter writes and says, as newborn babies desire the, 
eagerly desire the milk of the word, you know, it, that by it you may grow. So here's the deal. We're talking to them now about not just surviving, not just living, thank God we're alive, but growing and being nourished and being, you know, receiving this nourishment from this milk. That, that's what we're getting from him. So he's our life, yes. We're gonna, he, he has what we need. We, as we drink of him, we get life. As we drink of him, we're nourished and we grow. Well, what's the significance of wine? Well, you could tie wine to the anointing, sure. But I think in this context, what he's talking about is the enjoyment of him. Right? Wine itself, the purpose is not to keep you alive. Wine won't cause you to grow. But the point is, if you look, especially in the scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about it, we're talking about something God gave for enjoyment. So what's he talking about? He's talking about enjoying God. Enjoying him. And maybe that's something we don't talk enough about. We talk about God in such utilitarian terms. We need him to survive. We need him to grow. Can we just talk about enjoying God for a bit, though, too? Because, I mean, that's really, that's what he wants. He wants his people to enjoy him. He's most satisfied in us when we're most satisfied in him. You know, I, I love reading the Psalms and just reading how, I, how David says things like, in your presence there are pleasures everlasting. You know, we were created. Sometimes religion has taken all the joy out of life. Joy comes from God. Gladness comes from him. So, you know, we have tried to fill all these spots and, 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 and you know, maybe had a puritanical approach where we've said it, it's somehow wrong to have joy because we looked at what the world did to make himself glad and we said we don't want to do that. You know, the Bible talks about that drunkenness, carousing, immorality, all these things. This is what they're doing to try to make themselves happy, but that's a temporary happiness. Drunkenness has a hangover. Carousing has consequences. All of that's a, that's a problem. It's empty. It's hollow. But that doesn't mean we weren't created to be absolutely, abundantly, over the top enjoying God. Right? When he uses a word like wine, he's not talking about, let's, let's be reasonable here. You don't need that. You don't need that to live, but you need it to enjoy. He wants to be enjoyed. Not to stretch the metaphor too far, but he wants us to just absolutely go wild enjoying him. Do you believe that? Yeah. Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above everybody else. How in the world do you survive all those people hating you all the time? People constantly plotting to kill you. At the end of your ministry, 11 guys are standing with you. How do you, how do you get through that? Just really enjoying God, being glad all the time. It's not wrong to absolutely, absolutely enjoy God. It's, it's in fact wrong not to. In Luke 15... There are three stories told about something lost and, and then later being found. But the common thread through all of those things is at the end, rejoice with me, rejoice with me, party with me. At the end of the, all those stories, a party is thrown and the, the people that get the message come to the party and have a, have a good time. It's the Pharisees who stay out. It's the religious people who stay out. Imagine how many people would come to Jesus if you were every day 
so full of the enjoyment of who he is, the life that comes from him, the nourishment that comes from him, that you were really saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, when you say taste and see, it's because you've tasted, right? If you're saying taste and see because you heard it at church, you're missing it. And everybody else will see that as hollow. I'm supposed to say taste and see because the preacher said taste and see that the Lord is good. You know what? When you really like something, when you find an amazing restaurant, you tell everybody about it. You've got to taste this. You know, you get, you get a couple coffee nuts together. And people that don't drink coffee get annoyed real quick because they're talking about, oh, this is, this is the way I like, oh, have you tried this bean? You know, I mean, Nick and I uh, have you know, had a couple conversations where people just kind of zoned out because we were talking about the certain process that's used with this bean makes it like this. But, you know, I mean, this is, this is when you like the taste of something, you like talking about it. Now, that's just something as dumb as coffee. Can you imagine something as amazing as God? He wants to be enjoyed. Come. Come get water. Come get milk. Come get wine for me. Thank God he's the new wine, right? He's not the one that's going to give you regrets in the morning. You can drink all you want of him. It's an amazing thought because he ties himself with wine quite often in the Bible. In the New Testament, he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not an accident. That those two things are together. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is like the real thing that being drunk with wine is trying to imitate. Being drunk with wine is a cheap substitute for really just getting drunk on the Holy Spirit. Just drinking of him fully. Because, you know, when you get drunk with wine, you lose control. When you get drunk of the Holy Spirit, you get full of the Holy Spirit, you give him control. You don't do stupid things. You, do, you have a wisdom that you didn't have before. But as Paul said, if I'm out of my mind, it's for God. So maybe sometimes we do seem out of our minds. And that's a good thing. Sometimes you need to get out of your mind. Right? If I, he says, if I'm, if I'm of sound mind, it's for your benefit. If I'm out of my mind, it's for God. Sometimes we just got to seem out of our heads. Because our heads are limited. I don't get too far on that, but you know. Sometimes we're just so serious. I mean, I just... I, I, I was at a conference recently where um, it was said that, you know, the scripture was brought up that you'll sow in tears, but you'll reap with shouts of joy. And he said, you know, in those shouts of joy, in those, that, that joy of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's us reaping, that's, us, that's how we bring in the harvest is with joy. And uh, there's a time for tears, but there's certainly a time for joy. And the joy, even in the midst of tears, will bring you through that stage. But there's a time of shouts of joy. And that's, that's how we harvest. That's the receiving. Is, the harvest is, is a joyful time. And um, that joy, as you know, is, not, is never tied to your circumstances. It's tied to the inner working that God's doing in his spirit. And so I just want to ask you a few questions as we meditate on this. I'm going to try my best to just keep it simple tonight. Um, because I think with something so profound, if you were to go through the scripture over and over again, you'll find this, come. Not just come to me, but come to me and partake of me. Drink. Eat. I love when Jesus said, this is my food, to do the will of the one who sent me to accomplish his work. 
You know, he's saying this is the thing that gives me life. This is the thing that gives me substance. This is the thing that gives me enjoyment is to do his will. So I want to ask you, in those three areas, I just want you to think of those three beverages. Sounds weird when I call them beverages, doesn't it? Think of those three drinks in terms of God, because these are the things he's offering you. They're all found in him. These are not things he has. These are things he is, right? So he is this for us. He's offering it to you, but it really is of him. And so am I getting my life from God? Is that what's getting me through day to day? Is that what's refreshing me? Is that what's giving me the strength, you know, the, the, the life to keep going and not just to keep going but to thrive? Am I drinking of God? How do I drink of him? How do I, how do I constantly drink of the waters that he's talking about? He says those waters make us glad. He says those waters uh, breed trees that bring healing to the nations. Th- those waters, that's everything to us. Well, of course, Jesus said, when he said, drink of me on that day of the feast, he said, if you drink of me, here's the deal, out of your innermost will flow rivers of living water. So what's he really speaking of? He's he's hinting at the Holy Spirit. This was the Feast of Pentecost. So it's the Feast of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. So this is is a a fulfillment of something that somehow out of your innermost is going to flow the same water you've been drinking of. So this is one of the ways that we drink of of God is to... Fellowship with the Holy Spirit is to pray in the Holy Spirit, is to be led by the Holy Spirit, is to lean on the Holy Spirit, is to draw from the Holy Spirit. That's where I get my life. It's not a once a week thing. It's got to be every day. This is my life. You can't live without water for too long without the help of of God. When Jesus went 40 days without water, that's a miracle. There's a lot of people who can go 40 days without food, but 40 days without water, you need God. Your body's not built for that. Water is essential. So am I living from this? Am I living out of the Spirit? Am I living out of Him? The one I'm talking about milk, am I growing? Am I growing from Him? Am I growing in relation to Him? You know, you should be growing wiser. You should be learning. You should be studying. But you can never separate your study from the relationship with God. Here's the problem. If you do, your knowledge will outrun your love. And your knowledge will be twisted. Do you know what I'm saying? I know people that, that went through a, just a, a spurt of knowledge and their love wasn't keeping up. Their mercy wasn't keeping up to knowledge. And they, all of a sudden, they just look around and see everybody's wrong. In fact, I, I was there. That was me. At a certain point, I, I, I learned a lot. I read a lot of books. And I went through a stage uh, as a teenager where I just began to see the problems with everybody. And one of my fathers in the faith, Brother Tracy, he said to me, he goes, he said to me and, and Matthew, who's my brother-in-law now, but he said, boys, I'm going to talk to you as, as sons. He said, you're going to learn some things, but you're going to have to learn how to operate in love because if you get into that place where you're just judge, 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 and you're, you're seeing everything wrong, he said, you'll never really, you'll never really be able to see what God's doing in something. You just pick it apart. He says, sometimes you got to learn how to eat the meat, spit out the bones. Sometimes you got to learn how to have mercy and see God's mercy on someone. Because you, the more you learn, you know, can you imagine Jesus walking around? He would know everything wrong with everybody. So how did he have relationship with people? Right? Because if he was like we are sometimes, he would cast them all out of his presence. He, and he'd just be a hermit in the hills. 
Somehow he had to have enough love to cover the multitude of sins to bring them closer. And the people he didn't have time for were the ones that thought they didn't need anything. The ones he didn't have time for were the people that thought they were perfect. As long as they were coming closer to him, as long as they, they, were, they were willing to come with him on the journey, he was willing to accept them. So as I'm growing, and one of the prime ways to do that, is, according to the New Testament, is by his word. But his word, he is his word, right? You can't read your Bible without the Holy Spirit, right? If you're reading the Bible without the Holy Spirit, you're missing it. You'll get a lot of weird ideas. He's there. He's teaching you through that. He is the word made alive. So get into the Bible. Get into the word. There's life here, but it's alive. And that, as we talked about before, he is the way, the truth, and the life. So if you're looking for the way, you're looking for something that's moving. You're not looking for, for a, a, a blueprint you found in a textbook. He is the way. The way is alive. You've got to know him. Now he says, come buy wine. And I want to ask you, are you enjoying God? Are you enjoying God or has this become a big work for you? Has this become a job? You know, when we first get saved, I think most of us, if we're not careful, we separate our life into work and play. And when someone first invited you to church, it was kind of play. It was fun. They had music. There was people. And you got to hang out with folks. There was, you didn't have to do it. You just did it. Right? You wanted to. Something's drawing me here. But then you want to get plugged in. You start to do some jobs in the church. And, and you know, then you start to, if you're not careful, before long, your Christian life is just a bunch of work you're doing. And you've now pushed this over. It's not play. It's not fun. It's not my spare time anymore. This is part of my work now. And I don't enjoy it, but I've got to do it. Well, Jesus had no play or work. He just had life, right? He just lived life. And if he was working, it was because the Father was doing it. If he was relaxing, the Father was in it. God was in everything. So he, I don't think Jesus had these clean lines. This is my work time. This is my play time. It was all just life, right? So you can't come into the Christian walk and, and let that joy of being with him Take away the joy, I mean, take away that as you're trying to serve him and you forget it's just good to be with him. Sometimes we become like Martha rather than Mary. It's not like the dishes don't need to be done at some point, right? We do need Martha to do the dishes. But more than anything, we need to know him. How do you enjoy God day to day? Ask yourself the question, am I really enjoying him? And how am I enjoying him? How am I drinking of him in the sense where this is not for me to stay alive, this is not for me to grow, this is just for me to enjoy him? How do I do that? And maybe you're sitting here going, I have no idea. I never even thought of this. I don't, I don't even feel comfortable hearing this because I think this doesn't, sound, this doesn't sound very Christian. Have fun. You say, okay, so I'll go to Disney World with Jesus. Yes, absolutely, but that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> because if you need to go to Disney World with Jesus in order to have fun, your, your enjoyment's coming from something else. Yeah. Go to Disney World with Jesus, but that's not the source of your enjoyment. We need to go back to that place. I think about those stories of the, of, uh, for instance, the Azusa Street Revival back in the early 20th century in California. They talked about times where the presence of God was so thick that it would be like a cloud in the room. 
adults' response to that is to bow down, fall on their face, and there's a good time for that. But there was a, somebody that went back and got the stories of people that were still alive that were there, and most of the people that were still alive were children at the time. And they said the kids would just dance in the cloud. Dance and play in the cloud. The adults were like, ooh, we don't want to mess with this. The children, their response naturally was to play and to dance in the presence of God. Have we lost that? Have we thought that wasn't holy enough? Well, what in the world? What in the world are we going to do for eternity? Yeah, we're going to work. But he wants to be enjoyed. I love the Psalms. Read the Psalms. There's sometimes the Psalms are blues. They are tough. But there's other times where they just say, in your presence there's fullness of joy. And there's presence, there's pleasures everlasting. David says, if I'm in a dry, waterless place, there is no water, I'm dying of thirst. God, I thirst for you. He says, my soul, even my body thirsts for you. And that's an amazing thing. To be physically dying of thirst, and yet even your body wants more of God. That's an amazing thought. Have you ever wanted God so much your body felt it? Now that's somebody who's hooked. That's somebody who's addicted. God wants you addicted to him and nothing else. Can I make that clear? Nothing else. <laughs> addicted to anything else means something else has mastery over you. God doesn't want you to be a slave to anything else, even if it's minor. He wants you free from that. There's lots of good things to partake of. You can chew gum, but if you can't live without gum, quit gum for a while. You can enjoy coffee, but if every day you say, I need my coffee, take a break from coffee. But the one thing you never have to take a break from is him. See, because when we start to drink of God in these three areas, then it'll be natural. It won't be a chore for you to invite people to drink too. It'll be the hardest thing not to tell people. Right? You know when you really enjoy something and you start to get to the point where you're like, I should probably start talking, stop talking about this. People are tired of me talking about this. My wife has to put up with me talking about stuff. And then I say, oh, you know what, honey? I realize I've talked about this too much. She usually goes, no, no, it's fine. I enjoy listening to you. I don't know if she does, but she says that. <laughs> I guess not. She's just that great. But have you ever felt like, I just like this too much and people are going to get tired of me talking about it? Do you know why? It's hard not to. So why is it that we have to push ourselves and force ourselves to tell people about Jesus? Because we forgot how to drink. We forgot how to drink of him. And what we're selling is an idea that's a memory to us sometimes, where that we're just taking little drops of when we're just meant to indulge in him. Just gorge yourself in Jesus. Gorge yourself in God. Gorge yourself in the Spirit. Maybe take some time tonight thinking about those three areas. How do I get life from him? How do I draw from the wells of life? You know, I believe you draw from those wells of life by praying and singing and, and uh, rejoicing and, and talking to him and talking to other people. I believe that you, you draw from those wells of life in different ways. How am I being nourished and growing in, in him and, and from him. And how am I enjoying him? I just dare you to try it. You know, dare you to try it because then the hardest thing in the world would be not to tell people. The spirit and the bride are meant to join together in a grand voice saying, come. Come drink.
come drink. We should be high on our own supply. We should be, we should be drinking what we're selling here, guys. <laughs> He's that good. Amen. Let's stand up together and pray.